My name is Adam Levine. Yo, this your man, Kirk Franklin. Hello, everyone. I'm Erica Campbell. From London, England and Washington, D.C., you are tuned in to Conversations with Allison J. The Journey to Hear, brought to you by Ethel May Books. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Alison J, The Journey to Hear. I'm your host, Alison J. Today we'll be speaking with Mariam Ibrahim. Mariam is the author of the book Shackled. Mariam's journey is one of a woman born in a refugee camp. Her father, a Muslim, died when she was just six years old, and she was subsequently raised by her Ethiopian Orthodox Christian mother. Mariam, her mother and siblings suffered terrible abuse at the hands of her father as the demons of his past came back to haunt him. He had killed his 12-year-old sister and a young man she was talking to in an honour killing. At the age of seven, Mariam will be subjected to female genital mutilation, also known as female circumcision. She would be branded with burning hot iron rods several times as a medical remedy for ailments under sunna teachings. Her father was a Muslim. The assumption was that Mariam and her family would also be Muslims. So she spent most of her younger years living as a Muslim, efforts so that Mariam would renounce her Christian faith, something Mariam could not and would not do. Mariam dropped out of high school at 14 years old as she would not say the Shahada. She became an apprentice to her mother who by now was a successful businesswoman. Saying the Shahada would have allowed her the opportunity to graduate high school. The Shahada is the confession that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Mariam would later be accepted into and graduate from Khomeini Catholic School and then Khartoum University, get married to a South Sudanese Christian man and have a baby. Mariam being married to a Christian would land her in prison in 2013 with her nine month old son where she would be flogged and whipped weekly while on death row facing death by hanging. It was while still in prison in 2014 that Marion would give birth to her second child while shackled in chains and then circumcised for a second time immediately after the birth of her daughter. This was all because she married a Christian man and still would not renounce her Christian faith. Mariam is now free after an international public outcry. She lives in the US with her children and works for Tahrir Al-Nisa as the director of global mobilization. Tahrir Al-Nisa means setting women free. They are a team of women who know what it's like to be abused or to help those who have been abused by someone they love. Helping women escape and recover from domestic abuse, a rare living martyr, Mariam received continued international publicity and has spoken before the European Union and Pope Francis. She continues to speak publicly about religious freedom issues and on behalf of those who are oppressed globally. Mariam publicly advocates for those who are persecuted for their faith and those who are trying to escape the private prison of domestic abuse. Mariam, thank you so much for joining us here on Conversations with Alison J, The Journey to Hear. Mariam, welcome. Okay. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. I am so happy to see you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. You are more, more than welcome. Uh, 
Mariam, again, thank you so much for joining us here on Conversations with Alison Jay, The Journey to Here. And I must say, you know, nothing happens by chance and nothing happens by accident. <laughs> That's true. And sometimes it can be very annoying when you're shopping and all these other things pop up and because it's temptation. But I was looking for a particular book on Amazon and yours came up. Really? Yeah. Completely how it happened. And Mm -hmm. I read the um, synopsis of it that they put on there. And I immediately, Mariam, bought your book. (laughs) Oh, you did? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I, I immediately bought it. And from the moment I picked it up, I didn't put it down until I finished it. Wow. A lot of people say that. I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. It's so encouraging to know that, really. Yeah. It was one of those things where so many times we look at people that have gone through things like you have, and we think it happened like in 1800 and something, when we can't fathom that this is what people are still going through today. Because when we look at it, your journey isn't something that happened years and years ago. We're talking about less than 10 years ago, Marion. So I don't want to give too much of the book away, but in your own words, can you tell us about your journey? With Again, without giving too much of the book away, because we do want people to go and buy it. <laughs> we want this book to be a number one bestseller. <laughs> okay. So, well... Are you right? So we look into things. I was just talking with, uh, I have another um, interview and we're talking about my background with the refugee scam. And I see this still the flooding, huge amount of flooding of refugees are everywhere. So it's, yeah. Well, um, as I said, um, my story started with being born in a refugee camp in Sudan, beautiful country in Africa. We're very (laughs) grateful for a lot of God is blessing on us, but we have very corrupt government. And, you know, we live under Sharia, Islamic Sharia law. So, yeah, I was born for a Muslim and, and Christian, for a Muslim father and Christian mother. That's how the trouble get my way when I grow up and married to a Christian man. So it's the law that is supposed to protect people. Actually, it's punished me from a lot of, this personal choices I made and my mom made uh, to which she raised me and my siblings. So, but because I'm a girl, so that's mostly, you know, girls that and women are affected by this law in our countries. And you say that you were not protected by the law. And you, so look, reading your book, it showed that some of the things that you went through and there is there's even a section in it before you even get to chapter one and I'm going to um when I read that part I thought oh lord the note to the reader yeah not yeah and then there were two particular chapters that it mentions that um if you have to prepare yourself because they're quite disturbing and I like to believe that I have a cast iron constitution and I can take pretty much anything. And I must admit that the what you went through at the age of seven, 
female genital mutilation I must admit I was struggling to read through that because I thinking to myself my gosh that is the most barbaric thing that they could do how did that because affect you and I know this must sound like such a ridiculous question but in reading the book and how that was done to you how did that affect you well, it does affect me in many ways, and it just not me. I can tell this is something really happening now. And a part of the law also, we struggle with uh, traditional custom. That's why they, they um, you know, forced my mom to do that. She had to agree because traditional custom, that means you have to follow certain rules in the community. And for girls, it's really hard because um, if you didn't do this practice, you'd be considered unclean. Besides, you are Christian, this is unclean. You know, your daughter can get returned if she gets married and they find out she's not been done the practice, the, you know, feminine gentleman relation. They can return her, look upon her as a shame to the family, you know. And um, it's and it's a lot of death happened during that, you know, just for girls to get died during this practice, the, the, the procedure. And uh, again, in the, um, on the, in the future, you know, giving birth to children, it's really very hard, you know. To, and then they actually keep doing it repeatedly, especially after birth for a child. Um, it's very harmful. I can say it's really very harmful to physically and mentally for the girls. And I does have a huge impact all the long, you know, the way, you know, all your life, you always live with that pain, you know, and yeah, so it's acting act of injustice, really, that's, and it's so hard to be done, like, by the family, agreeing that they know this is painful, and this is harmful, but it's have to be done, because to please the communities, and, you know, yeah, to make sure the girl is completed, because if it's not done, it's looked upon as it's like she's missing something, something wrong with her. They're yeah. taking a part of her body, you know, which is God made us complete, you know, God made us in a perfect image, but yeah. I um, hear that you said that they do it repeatedly. So uh, every time after you have a child, they would go through that um, female mm. circumcision every time after having a child? Yeah. My goodness, I can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. And and you and you saying that if you don't do it, you're seen as unclean. So it's something that is not done privately; it's done publicly. Is that right? Oh no, yes, have to be done publicly. And um, I, if you read in the book, I mentioned that's how you know it's it's like. Um, big event like gathering, and they know who's exactly you know, have done the, that or not, you know, which family done for their daughters or not. And that's why now there's some law criminalizing this practice and the procedure, but um, yet people don't really um, have enough like knowledge or, or not being for educated about the, you know, the, the uh, how bad this, uh, you know, procedure can be for girls. That's why 
they don't report things like that. Just like honor killing, when happen, the girl faces certain issues and then the family get angry and she gets killed, nobody will report exactly. They will lie and say anything happened, but they know exactly who killed the girl and why. But they won't report it, you know, to the police or the authority, even the government. There's not even, uh, I would say that one of the things that we really, in my country in Sudan, when they start like establishing laws to criminalize this practice, we provide lots of recommendation. Like first thing we need to educate girls and even at the school, like some of the teachers, some of the this have done for themselves. They should have known exactly how bad it is, you know. And the mothers, I just can't imagine, like your mother, you know how bad it is, yet to do it for your daughter. So we recommended that uh, we provide like uh, educational programs for girls at the school, provide resources. Like if you know this something happened to you, and you know it's, uh, you should know how to to you know to ask for help and how to report that, because uh, when they did, they sub that. Uh, you know, you can face jail. If you are a nurse, you can lose your license. Midwife, you can lose your license if you don't that because it's done by a midwife. So, yeah. I actually don't have much conversation about this. <laughs> I mostly, like, uh, do speak about religious persecution, you know, why uh, of, you know, what people now facing really serious um, issues with religious persecution. So, so I appreciate you bringing this up. No, that, that's quite all right, because personally, um, I think this is something that, as I mentioned earlier, because we think that, oh, this is an old, outdated practice, they don't do it anymore. Or for many of us, we think, well, it doesn't happen in the country I live in, so I don't need to know about it. But the reality is, I think this is something we do need to discussed I think it's something that we do need to raise more awareness about because the more we know about it the more we can help those that are going through it don't you think I do agree with you even persecution even Islamic Sharia law it is uh, this is about like sometimes it says a certain law that uh, uh, underneath of the Islamic law says it's a traditional custom is more dangerous than this the law and then and it's all then like you know we shouldn't say no one above the law. I think I'm okay from here. Yeah, so we we do have this really um, uh, some discussion about you know changing laws, but yet people really fail to follow along and to comply mm. with um, this. And at the end, it is really a matter of um, how. Really, we understand the impact these practices have on girls or in their families and things like that. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, you mentioned that people don't talk about it very much. And I'm more than happy to have those kinds of hard conversations that people tend to run away from because they don't they don't want to talk about it. Because if they, they feel like if we don't talk about certain things, we can like we're burying our head in the sand and it doesn't exist. But I'm all for having conversations like this so that we can help. Because if we we can't help what we don't know. And I'm so, so sorry that A, you had to go through it. And then you mentioned also about honor killings. And we read in the book 
that your father was also someone that um, took part in an honor killing with his sister. And it's amazing that you say it doesn't go reported because your father, from what we can read, didn't even spend one day in jail. No, they don't because they come to, you know, they take um, the law in their own hand. Like it's either if it's happened in my father's cases can uh, break up a uh, um, war between two tribes. So, but uh, he, he flew the area and yet it's really become an issue because um, they, they totally forget about everything happened and they focus mostly about him and they seeking revenge and things like that. So, and in many cases, like now I really challenge with these situations because I'm very communicated with women all walk of life and faith. And I hear different stories, like how could it just be normal for um, someone to run away and to be to live hiding all their life. Yeah. Yes, because they made choices. In honor killing is really serious problem. And I will call it like um uh just like death penalty. That's been now that some of us are fighting to end uh polishing laws and both apostasy law and anti-conversion laws. But this is a part of it because and honor can happen like case of women, Muslim girls, especially Muslim community, when Muslim girls are um, married to non-Muslims or a girl have a relationship with, with a man and then the family find out it's also traditional custom, you know, cultures. And then um, when uh, a girl have a child outside marriage, you know, or, you know, happen to have a relationship with a man outside marriage, this is involved honor killing because, and they done it like with, with, you know, proudly talking about when you killed your daughter or sister or one of the girls in the family being dead because they think that what she done is, is bring shame to the family and they need to wash it with us by her blood. So it's really evil uh, action and evil behavior. So, and yeah, and it's happening. I can tell you, it's really happening, yeah. And it's like you said, it's happening and it's still happening today. Mm -hmm. We're in 2022 and this is honor killing mm -hmm. are still going on female circumcision or otherwise known as female genital mutilation still going on, honor killing still going on, people being persecuted for their faith still going on. And it's about time that we really just blow the lid off these things and we work to get the laws changed so that girls don't go through what you had to go through. And like you said, you have mothers that have been through this, these processes, these treatments, this abuse, let's call it what it is, it's abuse, but yet they still subject their daughters to it, to this very day, is that right? I would tell, I know my mother, my mother never that but she faced so much pressure from the community like to wear dress you know long dress and cover her hair we have to do that you have to do this and then yeah one of the things that it also um and because for us as a christian is sometimes is more obligation to do that because we we uh must do as this you know, and be their voice and be an advocate and comfort them. 
So um, a lot of time uh, we face some challenges, you know, when you speak about, oh, you, Christian, you're blessed as a chair. <laughs> you go and pray. <laughs> you don't talk about laws and things like that. And when I say about laws also, this is like, um, when we do things like that, like that, we do God's work, you know, because God uses people to do his work. So, yeah. It's, it's, it's truly, truly horrifying. And I can't imagine a mother putting her child through that. But obviously, like you said, the pressure is so great. Mm-hmm. And again, lack of education, isn't it? Lack of education, and even so, with education, also there's the mentality of like, oh, this is our culture, this is you know traditional, we must do it. So some, and this is really concerning to me as well. Some of the families that are come from those countries, even in Western countries, sometimes they take their daughters back, like in you know, holidays or a summer break, and they do that practice. So yeah. My gosh, yeah, obviously, yeah. because they know that they couldn't. And, and they use it actually a part of like religious freedom. It isn't religious freedom. This is human rights abuse, you know? Yeah. You mentioned they take the daughters back to their home countries to get it done because they know it's a completely against the law in Western countries, isn't it? It is. It's not. Yeah, again, it's the law. And um, sometimes also we have to. Tra- few cases uh, in case of divorce, you know, happened, divorce is bad and uh, I'm going through the same, but what happened is, uh, you hear me well now? I can hear you back now. Yeah, they use the term of religious premise to all the things that's really, we think that's according to our, you know, religion or traditional culture things like that so that's you know actually something um we really need also to bring up like you know there's a limit for that you practice your religious freedom for your own but when it's come to harm somebody or endanger somebody's life this has become you know serious um issues yeah my gosh, and you, um, you, you've talk, touched on, you spoke about um, religious freedoms as well. So you were raised by your mother, who is an Ethiopian Orthodox Christian, but you went through all of this because your father is a Muslim. Mm-hmm. And you would later get to find out that you have, that your father had another family somewhere. Yes, you know, it's common that you can marry more than a wife, you know, in, in Islamic culture. So, um, uh, and he abandoned that family. My father he happened when he get into that issue with honor killing, he abandoned his family and left. So I was raised by my mom. And she, one of the things that at the beginning she does when we move from the refugees camp to the city, she changed our like last name. Yes form of protection because she knows the trouble and evil that will come on our way from my father's side. So when um, we, are, we are, the problem we start with education, like us as a Christian or religious minority, we don't have access to, uh, you know, at the school for 
Christian, uh, you know, education and things like that, we are more exposed to Islam than to our, uh, you know, faith. So this is a natural love, natural. Like you know, if you have, if you are um, now Muslim, you have, you must uh, pass the Islamic test because we have four subjects: math, English, and Arabic, and Islamic teaching. This is include memorizing scripture from Quran. The Hadith, Sunnah, Al-Aqidah, which is called like instruction for Muslim how to live their life, like even like using bathroom, how to how to we study all this, we take the test. If you did not pass the test, you won't be able to move to Abu Ghraib. Okay. So, and can you please repeat that part about it teaches you even how to use the bathroom because the line was breaking up really badly. This is at the school. Start from the school. They teach you how to use the bathroom. As a girl, they teach you how the proper way to use the bathroom. I said Al-Aqidah, an Islamic teaching, which is like uh, the way you follow Islamic teaching. Yeah, how even to use a bathroom, eat, manage your money, and how to treat the unbeliever in war. Like, is really um, so, and I remember like I trouble started to me with the school, generous and forgiving and person she is, but yet she's called unbeliever. She looks as unclean on Islam. So um, this is one of the challenges that like you know most of Christian face. Like you be sitting next to Muslim student as a Christian child or a student, and then you have to repeat the same verses from Quran saying to kill unbeliever and don't eat their food, you know, and they go to hell if, you know, if they did not repent and accept Allah. So, yeah, it is really, um, I can say from what they say now, it's violation for religious freedom or not just, you know, it's harmful really sometimes. I do remember like how I get to uh, conversation with the teacher and then end up by travel, call to the office. Um, that's how I ended up dropping high school because it was really become very challenging time for me and my mom really get very concerning, but you're going to face lots of issues if you continue doing that and you can get killed, you know, the extremists out there. So, yeah. And you mentioned about schools and reading in the, your book, because you wouldn't say the Shahada, you couldn't graduate. Mm-hmm. She had each million confessing that um, on acceptance of Islam. And so fortunately, you were able to go to a Catholic school and you went on to university. And it was during your time at university that you would meet um, the man that you would marry. Yeah, after my graduation, yes. <laughs> and as a result of that, you ended up in prison with your child. <laughs> uh, for my marriage, the court considered my marriage invalid because I break two laws in Sudan. When I, as a, as a Christian, as a Muslim child, I was considered Muslim because children who were born for non-Muslim uh, mother and Muslim father must follow their father. Like you don't have other options. This is in many other Islamic country. So, um, so I grew up as a Christian breaking the law. I shouldn't have done that. My mom shouldn't praise me as a Christian because 
she's supposed to teach me about it. She does actually try her best with that. She allowed me to go to school, you know, <laughs> and study Islamic teaching, but she did not provide Islamic teaching at home to me. So that's a really big mistake for she does, which they will think. And then um, marrying as a Muslim girl, as a Muslim girl, I'm not supposed to marry Christian men. But Muslim men can marry any woman from all the faiths, can marry Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, any religion. This is a man. But for a girl, is not allowed to marry any, you know, outside Islam. And the reason they think they think that they play because women are weak. So if you are a woman, if you are a Muslim girl and you go and marry a Muslim man, your, your husband might convince you to marry non-Muslim. Oh. I mean, to become uh, a non-Muslim. And then if you are, that's when they wanted to have more people coming to Islam. So you Muslim man, go marry non-Muslim girls, and then you convince your wife. It's not, they can't force her, they agree on that, but they think that's just a mentality of like, you know, women are weak, you know, they can, <laughs> yeah. So you can convince your wife to convert to Islam. The other thing also, like they giving themselves authority is how people, like that's what it says in structure, how you live your life. So no, you can't marry because, you know, interfaith marriage is something really beautiful and special, but for Islam, it looks upon as no, it's not, you know, allowed. You can, for women, you know, are a Muslim girl. And then marrying Christian man is that's why I was uh, charged with adultery because right. I married as a chair. But my marriage considered invalid by the, by the court, according to, you know, personal uh, family law and personal status law in Sudan. The court determined my marriage invalid. That's why I was charged with adultery. And then me confessing that I'm a Christian is apostasy. Okay. So it's interesting. So, so legally, so to the rest of the world, legally, you were actually married. But because you were technically a Muslim woman, your marriage was considered invalid. You were, it was illegal. You, so in their eyes, you had children outside of wedlock. So they put you in Yes, and they, got to, they considered illegitimate children, yes. And I have no, like, uh, authority or power because we have this orphan place called Almeida this was yeah. That's when we say the law that is supposed to protect people, like you know, personal status and family law. So I would say the law. When I say the law that is supposed to protect people, it's actually more harmful to them when you just only crime is just choose personal choices in your life about your faith or your marriage or your children, things like that, and how you raise your children. Yeah. And this is only happy, only more harmful. Women are more, most targeted, you know, with this law, women and religious. And it would be while you were in prison that you had your second child. I have my oldest one with me too. Mm. Allowed yeah. yeah. Well, I can say, Mariam, the devil is a liar. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> <No>. a <laughs> I'm like, Jesus, what is well, going on? Satan is not a threat. 
Yeah, he's not trying <laughs> to let this word go out. I'm telling you that. I'm telling you. But we're oh, gonna goodness. we're gonna keep pushing through, Marion. We're gonna keep pushing through. So yeah, yeah, we're gonna push through. So um let me ask that again. So you were in you were in prison for because your marriage was considered illegal and they put you in prison with your nine month old son. And mm-hmm. from reading in the book, there were other actually it's normal. There is a lot of women. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of women with different crimes. They have their children, but you're not allowed to keep the child with you inside prison more than, um, older than two years. Oh. They have to, if you have family members, they can. but on my case, I'm not, I have to give it to the government after two years wow. because, yeah. So even though your husband limited. and his family are still alive, they would rather your son be raised in an orphanage than be given to his father just because you married a Christian man. Yes. And in my case, it's really people are scared. You know, I was rejected with oh. all most of my surroundings. People are really scared, like even to, to mention my name or to, a lot of people get arrested given this. This group called NISS, like National Intelligence Security Service in Sudan. They're a really corrupt group that they spy on people, you know, on internet. She being her office being vandalized. Sorry, Sorry, it froze. The last thing we heard was they spy on people um, through the internet. I think that's what you said. Yeah, on the internet and social media, they do. So most of, and when really my case got some public attention, a lot of people get scared, like even, you know, to come um, visit or talk to me or speak about my, my case. And uh, one of the things that uh, happened at the beginning before I go to prison, I was asked to, to escape the country. Like, you know, try to rescue, save your life. And for me as a Christian, I will tell them, I'm already saved, you know, by knowing Christ. But, so I can like run from this situation just because I'm afraid of jail or to die or things like that. And it's persecution is real and it's happening, happening and it can come to us, you know. Um, that's my understanding about my situation, you know, and it's, uh, it's a matter of understanding. Like I know exactly why I am there and not because I am bad or I'm called unclean. And I, I also accuse of being like, you know, I still choose to go to prison. And instead of just obeying the law or complying with whatever the government, you know, the judge said, except the shihada, and then you step out. I was given many options, but none of this really uh, was a choice for me, you know. Prison was the hardest one, and yet this choice for me. Yeah, but yet it's the only option I have, you know, to take. You say that you were given many options, but really they were they were all options that went, every single one of them were against your faith. Yes, that's true. And and it would be like while you were in prison, so in so you went to prison in 2013, and in 2014 you would give birth to your second child 
under what I can only describe as the most horrific conditions, shackled in chains. No, they turned out the light. So the midwife had to deliver your daughter in the in complete darkness. It sounds like just sheer barbaric. Yeah, that's, it is. But, you know, because this is all when I say when I talk about the background of this, I would say whatever I mention, like Islamic Sharia law, Islamic law, that's normal things. And when I say it, it doesn't mean like you are, have to name it. You say, give it a name, say it like what it is. Because um, uh, it's not an act of love, you know, you say it with love. Know how mother, how bold they are and how, you know, you still have to say this. So, and that's one of the things that they thought this lost thing, this moment for her giving birth is might be like the last, you know that. Because um, one of the blessings that God really put on that situation was me being pregnant because at the end of the trial, when I first, um, when I was sentenced, the judge uh, gave me two years before how the sentence I've been executed, first being flogged and executed, I was given two years. During these two years that my lawyer was in, um, uh, one, one of the cases, dissimilar to my case, as involved a, a man was sentenced today was executed the next day wow. like if i wasn't pregnant my lawyers like they know i'm going to be sentenced to death so they have the appeal ready to file to the court so they can have more time to argue and they start arguing the case actually in a matter of um human rights you know perspective because sudan is uh signed uh, you know the declaration of human rights law and it's a member of the united Nations. so they must you know have uh, something, you know, to do other than punishing me because uh, illegally, you know, from life's perspective, they think that Sudan violated certain, you know, a human rights uh, law toward me and my children. That's the argument at the court. But I would say that God just uses those group of lawyers. They came just in the right time and then the pregnancy. So or came out, there's something really that they can, if they really understand, they just understand the situation. As I said to him, my life, my children's life is not in your hand, it's in God's hand. So that's how it was given. So yet, them to see that I have to give birth in a horrible situation, they wanted me to die and the child to die because my death, that's what they want. The child's death is mean, you know, I will get executed. One of us have to die or either both of us. So it's their attention to harm me and my child is not something really they can, you know, is avoidable, I can say, because I can allow to go give person in a hospital, like, because my lawyer requested that. They said, no, this chance and all, this, it's all just force of the trying to put fear on, you know, on my, my heart or and the other thing also my death is what they want so that's the reality you know oh my gosh and did god really have a different plan you know no matter you know that's what i will say <laughs> absolutely mariam because to be honest you even being here today is nothing short of a miracle because honestly mm -hmm. reading the book and the 
because everything you went through from the age of seven and even before that, because your father was abusive and what you saw he did to your mother when he tied her up because she wanted a divorce. I re remember reading that and thinking, wow, my mom, just wow, I, I cannot believe somebody would do that to another person. So from even seeing those kinds of things, everything you went through, the fact that you are still here and in your right mind is nothing short of a miracle. And you know what, sometimes that's what I really get to understand because when I came to the state, I really don't have much attention, like, you know, to, to do much of advocacy or what I'm doing. But I always pray like, God, you really know exactly what you have, what's the plan you have for me. Because when I get married, I like United States, but I, there's no, my husband is a US citizen, but there's no intention for me to come to the state. Start my business in Sudan and everything. Like three years after my marriage, the situation started. That's why I have to come to the state. So all of this, my plan was to build my business, to be a strong and independent woman, to take care of my children. And I sent my children to Catholic school in Sudan. But yet, God have a different plan. My plan was never like, and his plan is always perfect, plan to give us a hope and future and not to harm us. Right. So, and when I came, I like, okay, there's something really God wanted you know, to happen in my life from this experience. So it took me a long time really to decide to write the book the way it happened now. And um, I was the advocacy in the work I do. A lot of time, like, I have no idea, like, how I involved in doing these things. But I can see his hands on everything I really do. And I pray it will continue to be. And it's interesting you say that your plan and I put the emphasis on you saying your plan was to have your business, be independent, raise your children. But when you were saying that, I tell you what came to me, the verse from the Bible that says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the Lord directs his steps. Yes, that is That's <laughs> so correct. Interesting, interesting that you had your plan, mm -hmm. but that really wasn't the plan for your life. That is not. As I mentioned, you went through some really barbaric treatment in prison, giving birth to your children, and subsequently your lawyers worked and were able to get you released after a huge international outcry to the part where even the Pope got involved. Yeah, it's happened. And you know what? The, the, uh, when I tell some people like that, I have no idea Like people are really praying for me or for my children. Because in prison... I don't have much access to communication with outside the world. I'm not even allowed to keep a piece of paper or a pen on my plonging in prison because they search everywhere in my plonging. So I don't have communication. Honestly, I don't have any communication with the world. But we just prayed. My son and I really prayed from that dark prison. And God brought us in many people's hearts. My church was really being very supportive from the beginning to my situation. And I have really much uh, some confusion at the beginning, like, why is he doing that to me? And I start getting upset. And then I got to understand this is persecution and it's happened, you know, but God has the last final words when it's come to persecution and when it comes to our choices, you know, between Christ and our life and whatever the world wants from us. So um, my church involved, 
in the um uh, yes uh it's involved you know other diplomatic getting from different countries because some of uh my lawyers actually are very human rights activists so they have you know history of doing working with some other you know organization and people outside the country so and um the body can get involved because the relationship between Sudan and my children are a US citizen. They don't have their documentation at that time. That was very challenging thing, situation too. And but the relationship between the United States and Sudan is not good at that time. And they tried to politicalize the situation. Sudan was in the terrorist list because they fostered a lot of terrorists like Osama bin Laden. And they end up the sanction and they put Sudan terrorist list. So one of the things that Sudan asked from the United States in order for them to let me go, they have to uh, remove Sudan from the terrorist list. And they they refuse to do that. So, and I mean, it's take long because it's a hard decision to make, you know. So, and the time is running because I have only six months, Martin will go to the orphan. And then, yeah. And then two years, then we get executed. So Italy stepped in and they negotiated with Sudan and done whatever Sudan asked them to do. And I was allowed to leave the country. Yes, I spent a month at the United, I mean, at the US Embassy in Khartoum, in Sudan. So yeah, the first night after I was released, because my when my, my daughter was born, they didn't gave her the name I gave it. So they recorded her in my prison file as anonymous, unknown. Anonymous. Yes. So when I left Sudan, when I left the same night I left prison, I called in and I said, uh, one of the the embassy staffer, actually we go to the same church, the Cathedral of St. Matthew. I asked him, I needed to baptize my daughter. So we baptized Maya at the US embassy. And she was given a name then. So because she does not have a birth uh, certificate from Sudan, she doesn't have any documentation. Only when she was baptized and was given name in class. They would rather have your child anonymous rather than even give her a name. No, because they should, she should go and stay, you know, once you go to the orphanage, you know, call her Islamic name and she will grow up as a Muslim because that's what's the plan. And then the other thing also, I really have very strong business. I started it. And then when I get um, rearrested again, when I'm leaving the country, um, they asked me to sign off everything. And I did, really did, because that's most of, you know, would come from apostasy charges. We forgive you. We're not going to kill you, but you have to give up everything you want. And I did. I didn't even ask my lawyers. I didn't even, like, thought about it. It's only five minutes conversation with an officer. And I did. One of the NISS officers. And I did whatever they asked. Knowing that this material thing that I want, at that moment, knowing that I'm out of prison and I am allowed to leave the country with my children alive, doesn't have any price, you know. And I'm able to raise them as a Christian. Does mean have a lot to me, you know. So um, one of the things that's happened also, I remember walking out, stepping in this airplane, they wave and they tell me that 
we took everything from you. You're leaving Sudan with nothing. Mm. And I would say, no, I'm not leaving Sudan with nothing. I'm leaving Sudan with everything I need. You took what, what is something that I can make again, mm-hmm. but there's something that you're not able to take out of my heart or of my children's life or my life. And it's love of Christ. So that's one of the moments leaving Sudan. And then we flew to Italy, spent 10 days there. We met with the Pope the same day we landed in Italy. And now here we are. And, you know, you saying that, because um, a few minutes ago, you said that what you wanted to do was have your businesses and be independent. And it's like they must have, obviously, they knew that that was one way for them to uh, continue trying to teach you a lesson so to speak by stripping you of everything you owned everything you worked for thinking that that would break you and let me ask you Marion was there ever a time when you were in prison especially after the floggings after um, the barbaric way in which you had your daughter was there ever a time when you felt like Lord I can't I just can't go on I can't do this was there ever a time when you thought you just your faith was just like nope I can't do this? No, there is never a moment like that for two reasons. When when uh, my mom always used to tell us like when you're facing trouble you think that you 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 know there's something bad you know, go to the hospital look at the sick people as lying down at the you know hospital bed they can't even breathe so you will find something that to be thankful for. So when I went to prison, I start looking around and questioning. Like I experienced a lot of things on my own. I witnessed a lot of injustice, persecution. But what I have seen in prison, what I saw in prison is different, like different things. And I mentioned a lot about this in the book. So um, that's when I, you know, and when I, do you know when my priest will say also like when we help other we heal like really how is that so i really find that's practically that more the, you know is that time the other thing also you know the bible says we nothing can separate us from god's love and, and we face persecution hardship but then when i am weak i'm strong so there's a lot of moments that i see fear in their eyes when they try to punish me and you know and try to I see that in their eyes but it wasn't on me that's one of the things that we say this woman is is or you know obsessed she's crazy or and elsewhere there's someone really powerful behind you like really powerful that's why you know who you're relying on and I will tell them nothing other no one other than Jesus because personally I don't have like big you know, wealthy family or anybody that from my family in the government, I'm almost like just solo woman, no family, bigger life. The one that I, they think, and they say they're my blood, they're the one who brought me to jail. Like they're the one who put me in jail, put me in that situation and they wanted me to die. So, yeah. And I can, I can say this like, you know, when after Jesus was died, you know, after the, the, the disciples were really afraid. And this is when we say he's with us. He's really with us because nobody, you know, the prison doors don't 
keep him away the locked door, don't keep him. He came in through the closed door to the disciple and he told them, peace be with you. So that's peace. That's the power of, you know, the Holy Spirit and um, the presence of, you know, God. He can be with us, but how we really experience that peace that no one knew. So you were talking about sorry, the peace that God gives you. That's correct. So, Mariam, so after going through all of that treatment, after experiencing the barbaric treatment that you did and seeing some of the horrific things that you did, you're now here in the U.S. Can you tell us a bit about the work that you're doing now? A lot of time I... Uh, I struggle, like, you know, to speak about, I'm mostly advocacy, I really do. I, I'm connected to lots of different, you know, women from work, faith, and life. Um, I uh, co-founded an organization called Tahrir Anissa Foundation with my friend Nagma Penahi, which, um non-profit organizes uh, religiously motivated violence and even Christian, you know, because I, I volunteer a lot with different, um, you know, network and groups that advocate for um, prosecuted church mostly. And uh, actually we done, I done a book tour for Shackle on, on March and then we're doing another one um, uh, between uh, July and August. And the proceeding from this tour, the book, actually most of Shackle is going to be going toward safe house for women who face um, oppression and persecuted and um, in some restricted country like Iran and Somalia. So, because I mean, I know exactly what it's mean to have a safe home because I believe women and mothers and, and girls at the foundation of the family. Like when they are safe and when they are protected, you know, all the family is um, safe and protected. So yeah, that's must. Um, I am also on the board of director for Anti-Trafficking International. So yeah. Thank you. And it's amazing that with everything that you've been through, you are still so strong and have the grace and the courage to still help so many. So Miriam, how are your children doing now? Fortunately, your daughter was too young to be able to remember it. So how is how is your son? How is how are they your children doing now? Are they well? My children are doing very well. They are they have very, very uh, great support system and community. They are really very well. So yeah, we we kind of like not miss much you know and um i believe it's god's plan and this is what he wanted to happen in their life and no my don't remember they have some challenges at the beginning like talking about what's happened because one of the challenges i faced was called like you're a bad mother you let your children stay in prison you know you know, you're going to lose your children and yet you stay. My, you know, they, they have, they have really to take me so much, take too much, um, you know, press to prepare them, like to explain what happened. 
And um, one of the things my son like to say, Mama, those people who done that to us, they didn't know, they, they don't love Jesus. So I would say, no, we don't call it they don't love Jesus because love is in our heart. And we don't know what's, sometimes I show in action and what they done is not an act of love to us. But yet we don't, you know, some that we don't judge that. But we will say that they don't know Jesus. So we can pray that they will get to know him. And he can make himself known to them. That's, yeah. But they know about persecution and they know. Yeah. Your children have still come through this and are still, and are doing well. That is, that's wonderful to hear. And I'm, I'm so happy that you have been able to escape from that because the thought of, being on death row, facing hanging, I can't even begin to fathom what that must have done to you mentally, but you were able to hold on to your faith and listening to you and reading your book, you remind me of um, Job, <laughs> because I'm sure that many people would have said, why don't you just, and even in fact, in the book, many people say, why don't you just say the Shahada, just say it, just say it, just say it. But you're just like, no. And I think that's the equivalent in Job, where Job's wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? But Job was just like, nope, I am not going to. And that just sounds so much like you and your story. Yeah, because I can tell you it's not something I did. God really does. So I have one of my friends who would like say, when we just have the book, Miriam, if I am you, if I'm in your situation, I will dance the shihada for them. I will sing the song, like I will sing it and dance the shihada for them. Like, yeah. But, you know, it's just a matter of like, you know, have, that's why I like um, Hebrew 11, you know, faith about, you know. And, yeah, and God is good, really. He done um, miracles in my life, in our life. And I do trust that he will um, do the same for many other really people facing persecution, especially for women and yeah, people of faith that are being persecuted and facing this evil every single day. And if they do, that's why you like Hebrews 11. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mariam, thank you so much for taking the time to go through with us step-by-step step your journey and sharing your faith with us. I truly appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. Mariam, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope that- Thank you very much. You're welcome. And I hope and pray from here on in that your life just continues to blossom and flourish and you continue to walk in your purpose and just be all that God has called you to be. I appreciate you really and appreciate your voice and you raising um, this issue then asking the hard question keep doing the same i like to do that too (laughs) wonderful thank you so much my dear blessings to you and to your children take care take care thank you me too thank you for spending time with us we're already looking forward to the next episode of this is conversations with allison J. The journey to here. Until next time, honor, respect, and blessings to you all. If you want to connect, visit allisonj.net. That's A L I S O N J A Y E.net.
Allison with one L, as she is the one and only 